As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, 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 no pun intended. I've got a slight bone to pick with the Dylan the dog that came and sort of leapt up at me. But he blanked me in the park the other day. No, because you were so happy last week that he'd smelled you from a long distance. I know. I know, I know, but I mean, like, I still like love him to bits. But I, to be honest, I was—I think there's good explanations for it because I was running, mm. and obviously I'm like grease lightning, so he couldn't—you know—he didn't notice—he didn't notice me in doing my run. I think if, he, if I'd been walking, he would have—he would have definitely, you know, done the same thing. But I was a little bit—I was a little bit disappointed to be blanked by him. So if he's listening. I hope he'll just sort of take it into account. You see, I'd have thought if you were running, your odour would have been even stronger due to your, your, the true. sweat you're emitting. That's true. Do you think I'm malodorous? You, you could be. Um, you, you've not changed your cologne, have you? My father used to use this phrase, malodorous. I mean, if you think I use words from the sort of 1960s, <laughs> I mean... Even I don't use the word malodorous. So he he was using words from the 1870s. So it's, it's, we were to consider it progress that you're using words from the 40s. Well, given that the English was English wasn't his first language, maybe he maybe he sort of <laughs> maybe it was you know I don't know maybe it, he was Acton or Ealing Technical College. Maybe when they were when he was learning English, maybe they were maybe he learned malodorous. <laughs> I think we used to laugh at him for using the phrase malodorous. 
Well, it's it's good to know that you're carrying on the tradition of uh, using slightly outdated words. Will you be passing that on to your sons? Are you going to buy them an old, out-of-date dictionary? Well, no, but actually, it's funny you should say that because I was actually just talking to my younger son, Sam, who's got a thing for the um, cuddly toys, and I've got a hippo from the 1970s, which we've just had re, um, re-upholstered. Um, re-stuffed? Re- well, it, not exactly re-stuffed, but he had a bit of... He had a bit of foot rot, I think. <laughs> so you've got a gangrenous soft hippo. Yeah, but he's not he's no longer gangrenous. We actually I actually managed to look at the label where he was made and when he was on sale, and it was sort of nineteen seventy four, was when we were living in Leeds. Um but anyway, I was actually talking to Sam about saying he would you know, we he could part you know, his children could sort of use the hippo too. What's the hippo called? I think he's just called hippo, actually. Um, he, I don't think he's. I, I don't know whether he once had a name. I don't think he does have a name. But he's obviously, he's obviously, you know, seen seen the world and sort of be, you know been around. Do you think your son Sam would be open to the idea of a hippo naming competition on the podcast? Good idea. Good idea. But I think there's a sort of there's a bit of a uh, malodorous oriented tension. <laughs> not that the hippo is malodorous here, which is maybe he needs a name from the 1970s in order to be sort of, you know, kind of historically appropriate. Well, I just want to I just want to come right out and say Jeff is a great 1970s name. Do you want me to lobby Sam for the hippo to be called Jeff? Yes, please. I think I think it's definitely open. Yeah, Jeff Jeff the hippo. You're on. You have a hippo named after you. Well, it's sort of run the end of the competition, isn't it? <laughs> don't know. I don't think there'll we, be a better suggestion, but let's see what the listeners come up with. Uh, reasons, we don't know. reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Yeah. How's your week been? We have had this week two mobile phones stolen and a wallet, all separately, all in separate incidents. What? Yeah. So uh, without too many gory details, Sarah had her phone snatched out of her hand while she was talking on it by a kid on a bike in Hackney on Monday. So I went and bought her another one. That got pickpocketed on the tube on Wednesday. And then I dropped my wallet in the street on Thursday, which was admittedly my fault. But then before I'd noticed, whoever found it started spending money on my bank cards in the local shops. Oh, my God, Jeff. I know. You're like a one family crime way. We are. Well, I'm really so I really am sorry. If there's anything I could What if I screen grabbed the last known address of where this phone was and then you could go around there and try and sort it out for me because the the police have said they don't really do that. Uh You just said if there's anything mm, you could do for me. Mm, not sure about that really. I think I might So I, you draw you draw the line at becoming some kind of vigilante. Well, I was going to say vigilante justice. I'm not. I'm not sure. My, I think my wife, being a judge and all, wouldn't really approve. You could be like Judge Dredd, Judge Ed. I think Judge Justine would say. When are they going to give her one of those daytime TV shows? Isn't that what all judges aspire to? Being like Judge Judy or Judge Rinder. She hasn't mentioned that. Funnily enough, I thought that was the career path. You do what she's done. You get all the way to the high court, and then somebody notices you and puts you on ITV in the middle of the day. Uh, do you remember that the original thing for this was the People's Court, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. Although, do you remember they used to show Crown Court on TV? Was that real Crown Court? Oh no, maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was a dramatization. I think it wasn't real. Has Justine ever been in one of those courtroom sketches that they do? Not that I know of. No. That'd be that'd be a great Christmas present. 
You're ignoring me, aren't under- you? You're not even humouring me. I'll take it under advisement. That's what you said when I suggested you bought her a silver gavel. I'll I'll take it under advisement. Okay. Let's talk about what we're talking about this week. I think I need to reframe your suggestion. This week <laughs> we're talking about the idea of framing. Yes, good segue. The stories and metaphors that shape how we see politics, economics and society. Framing was made popular by American linguist George Lakoff in the mid-2000s. His book, Don't Think of an Elephant, argued that the, in the US, the right had successfully set the terms of political debate by framing key issues to resonate with conservative values, leaving progressive playing catch-up. Framing starts from the insight that having the right facts or policies isn't enough to persuade people. To win change, you have to talk in terms of values and shift what is seen as common sense. We're talking to framing experts, Dora Mead and Nikki Hawkins, about the idea behind it and how things like economic inequality and poverty can be framed in a progressive way. And then we're talking to Ian Haney Lopez in California. He spent years studying how politicians have talked about race and racism in the US. We'll be asking Ian about how progressives can build a coalition around what he calls the race class narrative. What's your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, my reason to be cheerful was previewed, I believe, last week, which is that my electric bike has arrived. How exciting. It is exciting. I mean, I have completed the first task, which was opening the box in which it came, getting off the wrapping, sort of all of the wrapping, and there was a lot of wrapping, I'm afraid, um, without damaging the bike, or at least not noticeably damaging the bike, which I think is a low bar for most people, but for me was quite an achievement, actually. Um, because there was quite a lot of things I had to sort of snip off and so on, and I was really worried I was going to sort of damage the bike. And I'd have to do some... I will report back next week on the wheel handlebar alignment and putting on the pedals, which are the two things I need to do. And I've got an instruction manual, and I've set aside a number of hours to <laughs> kind of uh, carry out that that work. But it is definitely really exciting. And I never thought I'd be in this position because as my wife was reminding me uh the other night when she first suggested to me i believe it was back in june or july that i start riding a bike or maybe a bit earlier during lockdown i got quite irritated and said i wasn't a very good bike rider it wasn't for me and it wasn't a good idea to push me into it and look at you now I, along with many of your listeners, are, are uh, I'm, I'm slightly disappointed that you never went with the tricycle idea. Well, I was going to say I went through my tricycle period, but it sort of never really happened. What's your reason to be cheerful? Rudy's Vegan Butchers. Not Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, yeah, I there's, knew he... there's hair dye running down into all the products. I, I knew he'd give up on Trump's legal action eventually. <laughs> He's come and set up a vegan butcher's in Stoke Newington. That is a world exclusive, Jeff. Rudy Giuliani <laughs> has set up a place to produce sort of, you know, tofu burgers. Well, just, just so that we don't destroy their business, to the best of my knowledge, it isn't anything to do with Rudy Giuliani. And, okay, fair and also enough. it's actually not in Stoke Newington, it's in Islington, but I went well, there last enough. Sunday. They've got all this fake meat. I bought some fake pastrami and some fake bacon. I had a fake bacon sandwich, sorry, mm. for, for my breakfast two days on the trot. And it was, what was it like? It was really good. I mean, bearing in mind it's 20 years since I've eaten meat, so I'd... I'd you know i don't trust what was it made of the bacon i guess it's made of a a combination of soy and vegetables i didn't read the ingredient list 
too closely. So, so that is really exciting. I, I'm going to definitely uh, try and go there at some point. You've now thrown down the gauntlet, and I'm definitely going to have the veggie bacon sandwich. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to help us uh, help us frame this question of what framing is, we're joined by Dora Mead, who is head of messaging at the New Economy Organisers Network, Neon. Love a good acronym. And Nikki Hawkins, who's consultant at the Frameworks Institute and On Road Media. Uh, hello, both. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. Dora, let, let's just start with you. Do you want to talk to us about NEON? Um, what is it? What do you do there? And how did you end up working on economic messaging? NEON is kind of, it's a sort of, I think of it in a way as an infrastructure organisation. There's kind of different hubs within the organisation that um, do work to support and strengthen the kind of progressive sector in the UK. So that includes a movement building hub and also the communications hub that I'm part of. I kind of got into framing and messaging work um you know, in sort of 2010, I was working as a money and debt advisor, and I used to go into the sort of uh, community settings and do workshops about money and come armed with um, facts about how much credit cost and things like that. But I found that, unsurprisingly, those conversations were often ended up with people feeling very defensive or shut down. And a different strategy that we used was to ask questions about kind of people's childhood memories of money or... Um, emotions that underpin spending habits or what values they would want to pass down to their children and I think it was that experience really that taught me a lot about how we think about things the way in which kind of the the way that we talk about things or the way we frame things can shift people's thinking and actually shift people's kind of action and motivation to do stuff as well. Nikki, tell us, how did you get into work on framing? So I, um, I've i worked in communications on social environmental issues for quite a few years. Um, and I felt a strong sense that as progressives, we need to better understand uh, the public, better understand why people think certain things. Um, and we need to be able to better communicate the issues that, that really matter and that we need to achieve uh, such transformational change around. So can we talk about just the concept of framing a little bit? Sort of what is it? Is is it a new thing? Um and and it seems that the right perhaps cottoned on to it a little earlier than the left in terms of modern politics. Tell tell us a bit about the, the idea of framing and why it's important. The way I think about framing is that it's kind of a strategy that sits behind um the communicate like our, any kind of communication that we put out into the world I mean and that's kind of when we're thinking about it consciously right like we're always framing every time we kind of say anything or whether whenever we kind of put anything out into the world anyway I think it's probably true to say that um, it's something that right have cottoned on to more quickly in some ways and I think it's really important though in what we're talking about today around the um, and I think this is a kind of phrase that's coined by an American strategic communicator and at Shankar Osorio that we're not trying to say we're not trying to say what's popular we're trying to make popular what needs to be said and I think that the framing that we're talking about that me and Nikki work on and that we're talking about here is really about um, a kind of thinking carefully about what's the story that we want to be telling what is it that we're trying to kind of put like communicate and then understanding like how is that being heard by our audience and where can we kind of best position our argument to show what impact it would have on their day-to-day lives how it actually is kind of connected into the values and the experiences that they that they have 
And I think that maybe on the left, one of the things that we've been a bit slow on is we've really kind of clung to the idea that facts and figures can shift, can change minds. And we kind of, we, you know, we really want to tell people how bad things are over and over again. And we think if we find new ways to kind of say that often in statistics or numbers, that we will, you know, that is the way in which people are going to kind of come over to thinking in the way that we do. But actually what we find is people really do know how bad things are. It's whether or not we can move people to think that the solutions that we put forward are possible um, and that they are going to kind of step in and take action to make those kind of solutions into a reality. And what if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, call me cynical, but it it sounds a bit like spin to me. Is is it substantially different to that? So framing is is more than spin uh, because it is really fundamental to how we work as human beings. Um, So humans are powered by stories and shortcuts and associations and assumptions rather than facts and logic. So to be able to communicate as any human being to another human being, uh, we need to understand that a process of just flinging facts at people is unlikely to have the effects that we intend. And if we're trying to achieve progress on social and environmental issues, uh, we need to be able to make sure that we're being heard and understood rather than constantly being misheard and misunderstood and misinterpreted. So, for example, I really love talking about gigatons. And I think what you're telling me is maybe that's not the best way to persuade people. Um, Let's talk about, uh, to both of you, um, what are some of the examples of the dominant frames in our society um, and politics Bef- before we get on to sort of how progressives should approach this um nikki do you want to start what are some examples of the dominant frames and then we'll hear from dora first one is the idea of self-makingness uh, the idea that we succeed uh, solely based on hard work and good choices and if we fail it's because we didn't try hard enough or we didn't make the right choices um, and this perception really blinds us to the existence of systems and of structural inequality and it's constantly being activated and reactivated by the by the stories we we hear every day um and it can really impede uh making structural changes to to solve uh the big issues we face dora is there something you'd like to say about that yeah i think i mean i think we often find frames that um or we find that people can kind of toggle between two frames you can have a kind of idea around like a self make makedness the idea that kind of like we all kind of create our own destinies um, but people also can have access to a frame which is around kind of the importance of opportunity and this the opportunities and that kind of what's offered in terms of opportunities um largely impacts and has a huge kind of has a huge role to play in terms of where kind of people end up in life um, and I think the same in terms of dominant frames in our society like one being kind of a really fundamental frame is sort of a depiction of human nature right like the idea that individuals are um, competitive that they are unencumbered that they're separate from community um, and that they're basically out for themselves and a whole load of things can be built on that assumption but obviously you know I hope that this last year if has kind of in some way punctured that frame but also shows that we have a there's something else that we often draw on which is around power of community and family um, and our ability to kind of pull together you know when when we need to and that we are essentially kind of interconnected so I think I find it sometimes useful to think about the kind of those the sort of way in which there can, can be two or often more kind of frames at play. You mentioned before perhaps 
the progressives have had a, a, a tendency to believe that if they just present people with facts and numbers, their minds can be changed. What other mistakes do you think of, of, do progressives make in, in framing issues? I think there's a whole load of stuff around that kind of speaks to some of that, you know, the idea that what we end up, we really aren't, I think, very good at depicting the future that we want to see. Another way of thinking about that is sometimes we kind of lead with policies and actually what we need to be leading with is the um, what that those policies will actually mean, you know, when you look outside your front you know, door or when you kind of uh, you pick your child up from the school. So I think there's something about, um, yeah, both kind of asserting confidently kind of the solutions that we see in in a way that is um, expresses like the impact that they are going to have on people's lives. I think that we need to be um, being very careful around not um, repeating our opponents' frames, which is something that I think um, you, when you work in communications, you just see it all the time. And it's, you know, we often kind of talk about why myth-busting, for example, isn't actually effective. You know, it, often what it does, it strengthens the myth in people's minds. Now, Dora, you've done lots of work specifically on how the economy is framed. Can, can you tell us about that and, and how we go about reframing uh, the economy. Yeah, so that was a project that I did um, when I was working for the Public Interest Research Centre. So that the audience research part of that consisted of um, included in-depth interviews, sort of two-hour-long interviews with people all across the UK. You know, I remember travelling kind of to Hull and Wolverhampton and London and Glasgow. It was just after the Brexit vote. Um, and so it allowed us to kind of do get um, an insight into... Um, the kind of core, kind of key cultural models that people hold around the economy. And I think a key one, which for me has come back, is this idea of the economy as a as a as a container. So it's this uh, the the way people model the economy in their minds is that it's a bounded object, and you can put things in it, and you can take things out of it. And what this means is it kind of leads people on an individual level to think that people are either kind of contributors or they're sort of drainers, that they drain this kind of pot in some way. Um, and that that is then modelled um, as being kind of, on an individual level, you're sort of a good citizen if you're kind of contributing more than you're taking out. And you're kind of, yeah, a drain on the system in some way if you're seen as kind of taking out more than you're putting in. And and the right has been very successful, at least in Britain, at framing an economic discussion, at least in the 2010s, around the debt the deficit maxing out the nation's credit card all of that oh i hate it when they compare the national finances to your household finances they're two different things and they try and make it so homespun when it's it's just obviously so much more complicated than that yeah, I mean, I think we've seen that play out this week, right? I mean, it was on the BBC. There's been some backlash around the way that the um, that the, the metaphor has been used again around the ma- uh, maxing out the credit card. Um, and I think we've seen some shift in terms of I think that's then being called out. And I think there's some backlash and kind of a sense of um, you know uh, anger. So there's, I sort of take that in some way as kind of a positive shift of where we're at now. But I also think actually what we need to be doing is replacing that frame with something else um, rather than sort of resi- consistently saying that it's not true. Nikki, can, can you talk to us about your work on reframing poverty? Um, what, are, what are the dominant frames uh, that exist and, and how are you trying to challenge them? Yeah, so... Um... 
At the Frameworks Institute, we did a long piece of research looking at public perceptions around poverty. Um, this was very much against the backdrop of the sort of strivers grounder narrative. Um, so you had George Osborne talking about your next door neighbours sleeping off a life on benefits. You had um, really dominant frame in public discourse about hardworking families and the implication being some families work hard and, and some don't. Um, and this idea was constantly being reactivated through through uh, the political and, and, and kind of popular discourse with programmes like Benefit Street, um, really leaving a very strong impression on how people thought about poverty and hardship. We recommended telling a different story, which allowed people to see the structural causes of poverty. Um, so talking about how high housing costs and low wages can trap people in poverty and talking about how as a society um, we want everyone to be able to, um, to, to to get by. We want a compassionate society where we do the right thing by each other um, and we are we are looking out for each other. And so we've worked with lots of um, organisations like the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, people studying poverty um, so that they can communicate their facts and figures in ways that people will both understand and want to see action to change. Um, and then we've also seen people like Marcus Rashford, you know, take that new story and really you know take it to the next level in terms of uh you know everyone can be involved in supporting each other at this time and i think he's been incredibly effective in in activating our shared compassion and our shared need for a just society just on that point is there something about the story he was telling which is different from the conventional story which has made it more effective or, or is it a marcus rashford effect Yes, there's absolutely some key differences in the story he told and how he told it. He made this a story which is about everyone. It wasn't a divisive story. He also talked about it as being an issue of, of our values, um, our sort of shared values as a society, speaking from a kind of moral shared ground as opposed to a moral high ground, really, really tapping into um, what a lot of us think and feel but sometimes struggle to, to see in, in, in the world around us. Um, and um, he didn't kind of use facts and figures. You know, he didn't talk, you know, get trapped in that debate about what actually um, the figures are saying about poverty and whether it exists. But instead, he painted a really vivid picture of the reality of hardship and the need that we have to address it. So maybe to, to finish off, we could just ask you both to give us some kind of rules of the road for, for framing so the first one is is tell your own damn story. You know, don't get caught up in trying to refute or disprove the things other people are saying. Actually focus on the story you want to tell. Make that story something that is for everyone and about everyone rather than a divisive story about, you know, them and us. Um, and um, make it doable. Show that change is possible show that there are big problems in our society that we face, uh, like climate change, like structural inequality. But we do have it within our power to address those problems and to make concrete changes that are within our reach um, that will actually transform the way that we, we, we live and work and support each other. Dora, I feel Nikki's set the bar quite high there. Do you think you can do three off the top of your head like that? 
I know she, the listing system, the num- numerical list is intimidating. So I think, yeah, just two things on, um, to kind of build on that, because I absolutely agree with, um, the, what Nikki was, what Nikki also said. And I think, but I do think we need to be kind of conscious of the fact that we rarely get to frame and reframe entirely on our own terms. And I think we do need to be aware of the tactics that are being used, um, by our opponents. So, you know, an example being the kind of manufacturing of, culture wars that sort of takes a debate or shrinks it down to a very specific event um, and I think we need to be able to kind of directly call that out at times. I think also you know we've seen this within um, climate change like we uh, we need we want to be positioning our um, our arguments as common sense. I think we can often fall into a trap of talking about things as if they're radical as if they're kind of you know um, really sort of outside of like what's um, acceptable and I think actually we want to be showing our own ideas of being kind of the common sense the sort of obvious thing that we should be doing and that, that are kind of showing our opponents for being kind of outriders in that so I think that idea of where you're positioning yourself and how you're talking about you and the sort of um, your kind of base is super important in how we frame too good note to end on uh nikki hawkins and dora mead it's been a fascinating conversation thank you so much for joining us thank you very much thank you as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To talk about the wider issues of framing and an argument we're delighted now to be joined by ian haney lopez who is professor of law at uc berkeley co-founder of the race class narrative project and author of merge left how to fuse race and class win elections and save america a relatively ambitious title for a book uh, ian thank you so much for joining us 
delighted to be able to do so. Um, perhaps you can start by telling us how you got to work working on the issues of race, racism and class in, in politics. Well, uh, let me start by saying that I'm a professor of race in American law. And um, for, for decades, I've operated within the paradigm that I think um, many people remain within, which is a paradigm that understands racism is fundamentally a conflict of whites versus people of color. But uh, when Barack Obama was elected and then continued policies that amounted to government violence against communities of color, and I'm thinking aggressive policing, uh, over-incarceration, mass deportation, at that point it, it, it struck me that a model of racism as white versus non-white simply didn't have the explanatory power that I needed. It didn't, it didn't, I couldn't understand using that sort of a framework why Obama was continuing these sorts of government policies that were, you know, that directed massive violence against communities of color. And that really pushed me to realize that in the United States, since the 1960s, racism had become a normal part of politics. And that, in turn, made me realize it had become a normal part of politics because racism was functioning as a weapon of political and economic elites against all the rest of the country. And how does that fit into what Obama did as president, in your view? Obama understood that racism had been weaponized and that he was going to be attacked for being uh, soft on crime, for coddling African-American communities, for open borders. Uh, and what he did is he tried to insulate himself from those attacks by continuing mass incarceration, by actually ramping up levels of deportation aimed particularly at Latino communities, disproportionately at Latino communities, so that he could defend himself from those charges. And now Obama himself at that point was not acting as a sort of a, a representative, an agent of economic elites, but he was responding to a politics put in place by the Republican Party, um, formerly known as the party of big business. I think Obama's big mistake, though, was to think the, the rhetoric of the party of big business, the rhetoric of the Republican Party in terms of race, was somehow grounded in facts so that if he factually continued mass incarceration and mass deportation, he could refute the story being told against him. When the truth is, the, the Republican Party is telling a series of massive lies, and they really couldn't care less about reality on the ground so long as those lies are convincing. The, the lies work. That was Obama's mistake. Now, it's important to take that next step. Why is the Republican government or, or Republican Party systematically lying to the public? because they represent the interests of a relatively narrow slice of the population, the billionaire class, let's call them. And they understand that in order for the billionaire class to exercise power in the United States, all the rest of us need to be divided against each other. And those divisions, 
It's the division that matters. The precise contours matters less. In the United States, one of the primordial divisions is race, so they're constantly stoking racial divisions. Um, but culture war divisions work just fine, too. And it makes sense when you think about it from a sort of a, a divide and conquer point of view. When you have relatively few who seek to wield power against a much, much, much larger group, divide and conquer makes sense as a strategy. And crucial to um, the tactics that have been used in American politics is what is called both in the United States and indeed here dog whistle politics. Talk to us about what that is and how it's been used by the right in the U.S. So I think there's three important points when we talk about dog whistle politics. One, um, we've already touched on stoke division and in particular racial division. But two, do so in code to allow plausible deniability. Uh, This is important because what's what's happening is uh, the United States and also the UK and the European Union, our societies are changing. So there's a widespread sense in our societies that, that open racism is immoral. And so the dog whistle is a coded effort to stoke racial anxiety and racial resentment, coded in the sense that on its surface, it does not expressly endorse white supremacy. It doesn't use racial epithets, rarely talks in terms of whites, um, never says whites are superior, whites are in danger by these black and brown hordes, but does use language that triggers those sentiments. So talk about um, illegal aliens or welfare cheats or criminals or gangsters or um, uh, inferior cultures or, or religions that don't respect human life. All of those terms are designed to trigger racist fears, but to allow people to say, this is just common sense. I'm just talking on the level of culture or behavior, not on the level of race. That's the second point, the coded nature of these racial racial appeals. And the third point is dog whistling is not primarily about stoking grievance. It's primarily about stoking conflict in order to work for, in order to protect the interests of uh, the powerful few who benefit when we fight each other. It's a route to gaining and hoarding power. And one of the things that's quite significant about the 2020 elections, and it's obviously been remarked on a lot in the US, is that um, a significant minority of uh, Latino voters supported um, President Trump. Can you explain how that fits into your thesis? Yeah, it's such an important point. We are very used to talking about race in terms of these overarching racial categories, white, black, Latino. Um, But that's clearly a mistake. In, In fact, that reflects racist mythology from three or four hundred years ago that everybody of a particular racial identity shares one set of characteristics um, and they are separate and distinct from people in these other racial groups, right? That That's classic racist mythology. The reality is racial groups are groups that are constituted of people who are all just people they're constituted through social relations. They share many social dynamics. And one of the things that the, probably the most important thing we're seeing in 2020 in the United States is the power that comes from 
urging people to organize their social and political lives by punching down at their neighbors for being somehow inferior and threatening. There are many people of color who may be lighter skinned, who may have class advantages, um, who may be more assimilated, who are susceptible to political leaders saying to them, you should feel better about yourself because you're one of the good ones. The real threat in your life comes from the bad ones, comes from your neighbors who are darker, uh, lazier, more prone to criminality. That sort of rhetoric also works with some folks in communities of color, not a majority, um, but some significant number. And um, among Latinos in the United States, somewhere between um, a quarter and a third of Latinos. And I, I ran a bunch of focus groups all across the country among Latinos. And, and when we said things like, Donald Trump says Latinos, you know, that Mexicans are rapists, that Latinos are illegals, that we're an invading caravan. Repeatedly in focus groups, I got some significant minority of people who responded by saying, yeah, I know those lazy people. Those are my neighbors. And yeah, I came across legally. I waited in line. Those people, they're line jumpers. They don't respect our country. Uh, I'm a citizen. I learned English. I've anglicized my name. The core insight here is a set of racist ideas about light being better and dark being worse. That set of ideas works among whites, but not not among all whites. A significant number reject it. And it also works among those we consider people of color. You talked about um, Obama and about how, I guess, you know, a unique set of circumstances led to him playing defence on uh, politics of race. Um, I wondered if I could ask you more generally, what do progressives tend to get wrong in responding to dog whistle politics? So let me go back to that idea that a lot of us are coming out of a paradigm that says race is just about white versus non-white conflict. And what that does for progressives is it suggests two different possible responses. A group I, I call the race left responds by saying racism is everywhere in our politics, government, there's massive government violence against communities of color. We need to challenge that racism. What's important to notice, though, is that this perspective actually strengthens the message from the from the right. The message from the right is our societies are locked into a racial conflict between whites and people of color stand with whites. And now the race left comes and says, we are indeed locked into a racial conflict between whites and people of color, but whites are the bad ones because they're racist, stand with people of color. But it's the same, it's the same worldview. We are locked into a conflict between whites and people of color. And it'll be no surprise that when the race left promotes this message, we lose a lot of whites who are like, okay, if you're telling me we're locked into a racial conflict and I got to choose sides, I'm going to stay on the white side. I'm going to stay on the side that is supposedly superior and deserving and built this country and the real heirs to the U.S. or the U.K. or what, what have you. But what we're just finding out now, what the left is coming to see now, is you also lose a significant number of people of color. Because a significant number of people of color are saying, okay, the choice is between standing with those who are deserving versus standing with those who are demeaned, if I can possibly get away with it. 
I'm going to associate myself with the deserving, right? So, so this strategy of repeating the idea that we are locked into a conflict between whites and people of color ill serves the left. So the left also responds in a second way, and it says, okay, well, we can't challenge the racism, so let's ignore it. And I call this the colorblind left. And what's important here is that this is a racial strategy. It's a racial strategy of never talking about race and hoping you can shift the conversation onto something else that doesn't implicate racial conflict. So maybe it's trade policy or maybe it's health care or maybe it's wages. But it's a racial strategy in the sense that it recognizes, as most politicians in the United States do, that race has been weaponized against us. It's the number one driver of American politics. And what's our, re- and what's our response? What's our retort? Avoid it. Right? And, and what, so, so those are the two choices. And what I'm saying is a third way is possible, but that third way requires that we break out of this paradigm of understanding race as fundamentally a racial conflict uh, between different groups and start thinking about racism as a weapon of the rich against all the rest of us. I'm excited to to hear about the third way and what the ideas of framing this differently are. And, and I think this is what you're coming on to, this uh, idea that you've spoken about of the, the race class narrative. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look at what happens if we start talking about racism as something wielded by elites against all the rest of us. Now, all of a sudden, what we're saying to whites is, if you want to take care of your own family, that requires that you fight racism and build bridges with multiracial groups. And it says to communities of color, you're not on your own. You're not fighting against white racism and, you know, the majority society and 400 years of, of, of history. You're actually part of a multiracial future that is going to build this country for everyone. In other words, it creates the possibility of a, a multiracial coalition in which every racial group has their own interest in joining and working for that coalition. It's no, no group is saying we're doing this because we're demeaned and no group is saying we're doing this out of charity. Every group is saying we want the best for our own families. We want the best for our own communities. And what that requires is building bridges so that we have enough political power to stand up to the powerful few who seek to divide us. And you've seen evidence that this works in, in Minnesota. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So right now in the United States, people understand two things. One, the economic system is rigged for the rich. Two, we've never been as racially divided as we are. And what this story does is it combines them. It says the reason we're racially divided is not something that's inherent in us. It's because people are promoting racial division actively. And the reason the system is rigged is because we've been so busy fighting each other that the rich have been able to rig government and the marketplace for themselves and we keep electing their hand-picked political servants, right? So, so we started running this, it, it, the, the, these experiments, and early on, a, a, um, a, a grassroots group in Minnesota heard about what we were doing, and it made a lot of sense to them. They ran their own experiment. Their experiment, again, resoundingly successful. Here's, here's something I want to emphasize. This story, this approach centers on on class war 
but not in a way that drops attention to racial division, which I think happens in a lot of labor movements, right? Labor unions are, they're really comfortable with the idea of saying, hey, class is the main dynamic, but they immediately go from there to saying, so let's only talk about class, let's not talk about race. This is a different move. Minnesota started trying to do this. Um, they designed a really terrific campaign called Greater Than Fear. Uh, and it was, it's, uh, Greater Than Fear is operating on two levels. Um, greater than fear on one level is, is simply saying, hey, we shouldn't fear each other. That we're, Our neighbors, my neighbors, your neighbors are not the real threat you face. The real threat you face comes from these economic elites and the politicians doing their bidding. But greater than fear also operated on a second level. Um, and Minnesota was divided between, is divided between major metropolitan areas and rural Minnesota. And rural Minnesota, which is overwhelmingly white, was often called greater Minnesota. And so they picked up, so essentially this is a message that's really saying to whites, to rural Minnesota, you're greater when you join with your urban neighbors, you're greater when you find common cause with all of the state's population against the powerful few trying to divide us. This approach is the by far the most successful approach to, in a way to speak to whites and to say to whites, your best future will be achieved not by voting your racist fears, but by voting your racial hopes, by voting your egalitarian values, by making common cause with all of your neighbors. But here's the other thing that I really want to emphasize, because it's very important for this to get lost. This race class approach is also the most promising route towards racial justice for communities of color. Once we start talking about class, it becomes very easy for people to say, well, this is about economic populism, but what about mass incarceration? What about mass deportation? What about the systemic neglect of communities of color? And here's the insight. When we look at mass deportation, for example, or mass incarceration, the main source of that, the main root of that is not white racism. And that means just challenging white racism isn't the main way forward. The main source, the proximate cause of mass incarceration are politicians working for the rich, intentionally stoking division. And so the best route towards eliminating mass incarceration, the best route is electing officials who reject dog whistle politics, who understand that their election depends on a multiracial majority, and who understand that the multiracial majority is, is successful only to the extent that all racial groups are represented and treated with dignity uh, and regarded as equal. Just last question. How transferable is this approach? I think it's quite transferable. I think that so. So what here's what here's what's important. What's important is the idea that the powerful few engage in divide and conquer politics and the only pragmatic route forward for the rest of us is to build bridges across those divisions so that we can build sufficient political power to defend ourselves and defend our families. I think the the, the point for a UK audience is pay attention to the way in which some political elites promote the idea of a fundamental conflict between you and your neighbors. Because when they promote that idea and when you buy into it, 
you end up often punching down at your neighbors while the political elites laugh all the way to the bank. And, and in the United States, that takes a, a particular form in terms of anti-blackness. In the UK, the form will be slightly different. In France, it'll be slightly different. And the only way for us to stand up to that is by building bridges across the many, by seeing our fates are linked, not by demanding assimilation, not by demanding sameness, but by celebrating difference and realizing that what we have in common as human beings trying to take care of our families, trying to build a society in which everybody can thrive, everybody can lead a life that is defined by dignity and opportunity, that that's what creates common cause among all of us. Power tends to concentrate, and when it tends to concentrate, power defends itself by dividing all the rest of us. Well, look, that's an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, We're incredibly grateful to you for joining us. Uh, Ian Haney-Lopez, thank you so much. Thank you all. Well, two interesting conversations. What did you think? Well, I'll be honest, I was a little unconvinced about this as an idea for an episode going into it. I think framing to me, you know, sounded a lot like spin or marketing messages. And, you know, as I said, I really hate the way that politicians, for example, frame the national economy as being like a household budget uh, or keep repeating the same phrase over and over and over again because, you know, they've been given a party line or a message to to hammer home. Um, but I have ended up pretty convinced, I'd say. I was very, very interested in that detail that people tend not to be won over or respond to facts or figures but more if you can attach a story that fits in with their values, then you can get them behind an idea or an ideology. Yeah. And, and you know, if you think about lots of the issues of recent years, you know, like, for example, Trump maybe winning in 2016, it wasn't on policy that he won um, uh, or, or necessarily that people believed he was going to do his policies. Um, so I think one story's and policy matter and then secondly is it not not just policy matters sort of stories and narrative matter and then secondly i'm quite struck by the conversation with ian because i think what ian's sort of saying is it's very easy which i think is true actually it's very easy to get stuck in your opponent's frame and to sort of end up they offer a framing narrative and you end up just sort of being in that frame or being silent on that frame. He was saying that there's three strategies. There's a sort of, you know, he, what he calls a sort of the race narrative. So sort of, secondly, a kind of not saying anything about these issues. And thirdly, a thing that tries to sort of change the frame and tries to sort of expose what your opponents are doing. I think, I think that's what strikes me about what Ian's saying is that he's saying, You've got to sort of, if you like, you know, pull back the curtain on what the Republicans, for example, in America are trying to do and saying, look, they're trying to divide us when, in fact, we've got much more in in common. Um, so I think it is. Int- I think I think in a sense, what's important about the conversation is not that there's simple answers, because, my goodness, there aren't simple answers. That's sort of clear by the end of these conversations. But I think it gets you to think at a slightly different level than maybe is often the case. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
Well, we'd love to hear from you. Have you got any thoughts about framing? Framing issues, that is. I mean, we're also interested if you've got thoughts about framing pictures, paintings. You know, we'd, we'd love to hear them. Um, but m- maybe you've got ideas about how we could frame some of the issues we talk on the podcast to, to give those stories uh, cut through. I don't know. Anyway, uh, anything arising from the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Ashley Reynolds. Um, after last week's episode on B Corps, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. I'm listening to your podcast about better business with the founder of Ella's Kitchen speaking to you. I know of this brand because they have a waste flow set up with TerraCycle, uh, which I think would be a great organisation to focus a recycling stroke waste reduction stroke repurposing episode on. Um, essentially, what they do is recycle unrecyclable waste, usually plastic, such as bread bags, biro pens, plastic bags, crisp packets, pet food pouches, bags, makeup containers, uh, the things that dishwasher tablets come in, etc., and then turn them into plastic pellets to be melted down to something new like garden furniture or climbing frames, for example. I found out about it through my litter picking group. Um, I'm not at all connected to them. It's free to use. Uh, I think your podcast could be a great platform for them. Listen, I want to say one of the things I, I... I was going to ask about is the Ella's pouches of pureed vegetables. You can't just put them in the regular recycling. And then there is a link to the Ella's kitchen website saying what you can do with them. Um, so this, this must be it. This is very interesting. I'm going to get on my terror cycle at the weekend. <laughs> when you're on a cycle, it is a terror cycle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was from Ashley, by the way. And uh, this is from Kim Solga. And the subject is Canadian airport code. You, you're telling us our listeners have been able to solve something that the QI elves and the no such thing as a fish listeners couldn't solve. This is the content I am here for, Jeff. <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, never mind the gigatons. So, dear Ed and Jeff, I'm a long-time listener and big fan. Though I'm based in Canada. I've even been to one of your live shows at Underbelly in 2019. Usually, though, I listen on my commute from my home in Hamilton, Ontario, to my campus office at Western University in London, Ontario, which is how I find my, found myself listening to Anne Miller talking about the mystery of Canadian airport codes while travelling down the highway not far at all from YYZ, a.k.a. Toronto Pearson International Airport. As a child of immigrants growing up on the Canadian prairie, such an evocative email, this email, the airport code question fascinated me. My mum and I travelled regularly from Yeg, that's Edmonton, via YYZ, what's YYZ, YYZ or YYZ, as Kim might say, or YUL, Montreal, to Frankfurt, AM, Frankfurt am Main, FRA, and then on to Hamburg, Ham, aka the giggle inducing Fool'sbuttel. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we had to use YYC, Calgary, which caused major distress to me as a devout fan of the Edmonton Oilers hockey team. I hope you're still following, listeners. Huge rivalry. <laughs> I'd asked repeatedly during our travels where the codes came from. Mum had no clue, and I'm sure got sick of the question. Anne's comments on the QI, dig for answers to the code question, led me to do some Googling. I found a very recent article by Tanya Mock on Blog TO with this nugget about YYZ. As for the YZ part, that dates all the way back to the Morse code railway stations along the Canadian National Railway, which had two-letter identifiers. The code for the station in Moulton, Ontario, was YZ, which is where Pearson sits today, hence YYZ. As an adult-onset Torontonian with a prairie girl's heart, though, I have another theory about YYZ. Ah. Toronto is routinely mocked as the centre of the universe by Canadians based elsewhere, and it's hard to miss that Y and Z are the last letters of the alphabet. 
Could YYZ just be cheeky Pearson bosses deciding that all contrails lead back here eventually? <laughs> Huge thanks, as always, for the incredibly thought-provoking stuff, Kim Solga. It's a fantastic email. I don't think she really solves the problem, the question of why, does she? The why of the why. The why of the why. But it, honestly, it was it, it was good value. Um, if you've got an email, it doesn't need to be quite as good as Kim's. Please do get in touch. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Oh, we're in the outro. <laughs> that was very Scooby-Doo-ish. It was. I know what I'm going to be doing this weekend, or at least part of the weekend, playing a game called Among Us, which my children have become mega enthusiastic about. Have you heard of Among Us? What is it, like a parlour game? A bit like that. You basically all sit staring at your screens, and one of you is the imposter, and the rest of you are the crewmates. And you basically have to guess who the imposter is before the imposter kills everybody, and you've got to go around this kind of maze doing tasks. Alexandra Casio-Cortez played this rather notoriously and 400,000 people watched it on something called Twitch. How does it compare to Manic Miner? Manic Miner is more solitary and uh, nobody gets bumped off, I would say. Maybe we could do some kind of big reasons to be cheerful online game with our listeners. How many people can play at a time? I think 10. That, that covers our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm sure there are people among our listeners who've been playing among us and they can give me their thoughts on strategy. Right, let's thank our guests. Thanks to the brilliant Dora Mead and Nikki Hawkins and the fantastic Ian Haney-Lopez in California. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with backup and research from joel pierce he is supported by joe kenyon zoe gelber and fanula dc ed seed produced our music james deacon did our idents gail lofthouse is our brilliant announcer and our artwork is done by the inestimable henry cole also i would like to salute left foot forward for their support He's been hanging out at the vegan butchers. He's been blanked by a dog. And he's been... Reasons to be cheerful. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.